0: Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 20. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the lying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment and God permitting we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things, in your case, the things that have to do with salvation, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that you hope so that so what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear in the airs of of what was promised he confirmed it with an oath God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have been who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged we have this hope As an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, One of the most challenging uh, biblical doctrines uh, is the doctrine of eternal security. Uh, Or in more colloquial terms, once saved, always saved. Uh, Some of you may or may not know this, but we are a Presbyterian church uh, which holds to the doctrine of something called the perseverance of the saints. In essence, uh, we believe that the Bible teaches that those who are saved by grace through faith in the work of Jesus will persevere until the end that those who are truly saved will never lose that salvation. Uh, We believe that over and over again, the Bible uh, teaches us that God ensures that those who have been called uh, by his name, by himself, will be kept until the end. And that though we might wander or stray or what some uh, church folk uh, call backslide, uh, God ensures that we are given the faith necessary to trust in Jesus and that he then sustains that faith, continually drawing us back to himself until one day we are called home into glory. Uh, There are verses uh, all throughout Scripture that emphasize this idea to give you uh, just a little bit of a taste of those verses. John 6, verses 37-39 through says that all those the Father gives me, Will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the Father of Him who has sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those who He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus said, He shall lose none. John 10. Verse 27 through 29 says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And probably my favorite uh, verse that speaks to this is Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, track with us now, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, did you catch that train of thought in particular there in Romans 8? God predestined some for salvation. Now, that's a a whole different thing, uh, so pin that for a second. But God predestined some for salvation. As a result, he calls them to himself. Since he calls us to himself, according to Ephesians 2, he gifts us the necessary faith to trust in Jesus, which then justifies us. And here is what's important about perseverance. Those that he has justified... He also glorifies. If one has had a true saving faith in the work of Jesus, God, by His Spirit, ensures that we are glorified in eternity with Him. Now, I realize that for some, this doctrine can be a bit disconcerting, especially if it's fairly new. I realize that um, while what I just said maybe answers some questions for you, that it may also just create all brand new questions. You know, some questions that inevitably come as a result of this doctrine is, you know, what do you mean that God predestines some for salvation? I thought God wants all to be saved. You know, does not John 3.16 tell us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life? Or questions like, what do you mean God gives us the faith to trust in Jesus? Doesn't everyone have the ability to have faith in Jesus and some will choose him and some won't? You know, does that mean that you can, this whole concept of the perseverance of the faith of the saints, does that then mean you can just do whatever you want and you can never lose your salvation? You know, those those of course are the questions that maybe some Christians who trust in Jesus would ask. But there's also questions that those who wouldn't identify as, a, as as a Christian when they hear the doctrine they might hear or they might have other kinds of questions. Questions like, "Well, that just seems so unjust. How could I worship a God who chooses some to be saved and others to be not? I don't I can't worship a God like that." And to be fair, if you have any of these kinds of questions or thoughts, please know that those are the right kinds of questions to be asked. Those are the right kinds of concerns to have. In fact, people know that this, uh, that people, there are many people, many Christians that I even know personally that disagree completely with this doctrine. I mean, this has been a doctrine that has been debated for hundreds of years. This doctrine is one of the issues uh, that was at the heart of the Reformation in the 16th and 17th century. This was the kind of thing that's been debated ever since then and even long before that. This is one of those issues that has created all different types of church denominations and church traditions. It is because of issues like this one, doctrines like this one. And there are many Christians who do not believe the same thing, especially as it relates to this particular doctrine. And the reason I note that is because though we believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and though I am thoroughly convinced of this doctrine from Scripture, those who disagree with the doctrine, it's important just to note that they are still part of the same family of God. We are all part of the same family of God. Whether we acknowledge this doctrine to be true or not. In the end, there are many who disagree with me, with whom I will spend eternity. The gospel message does not depend on one's profession of the perseverance of the saints. Now, having said that, as one who believes this doctrine to be the clear teaching of Scripture, I do believe that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints shows us the depths of God's saving grace in a way that other uh, positions on this issue, I don't believe, quite do, quite get there as fully. Because if you notice, especially in Romans 8, let me just maybe explain a little bit of what I mean by this. In Romans 8, you see the extent to which God is committed to ensuring that those whom he's called to himself actually persevere. In Romans 8, we see that God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies. God gives us what we need, and he sustains us to the end. The work of salvation is thoroughly a work of God, and it puts on full display the true depths of his saving grace, for he is the one at work. You know, related to this is also the the doctrine of our understanding of the sacraments, the sacraments being baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that we are, uh, that, we, that one of the ways that God sustains us until the end is through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that he nourishes us and he strengthens the faith of those whom he saved. With baptism, we believe that baptism is a declaration of God's commitment to us, For those in Christ, every time you witness a baptism, it should be a reminder of your own. And as a result, you should be reminded that God promises that he will sustain you to the end. Baptisms are a reminder of the promises of God to us, and they nourish us in that way. With the Lord's Supper, as we gather around the table and Of course, we lament that we've just been in this season where we have not been able to do that, and I thoroughly look forward to, again, joining together to be around that communion table with you once again. But we believe that by His Spirit, Jesus is at that table, meeting us at that table, nourishing us with Himself. And as a result, the regular rhythm of meeting with Him nourishes us until one day we join with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate Lord's Supper communion table dinner with Jesus. Now, everything I've just said uh, is a bit of the intro to my sermon. Um, why do I bring all this up? Why do I spend my time there when we are in a series on Hebrew, in Hebrews, particularly now looking at Hebrews 6? Why do I bring all this up? What does it have to do with our passage? Well, as I said, there are those who disagree with the idea of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. And they use, those who disagree, use the chapter 6 of Hebrews as one of the main chapters, one of the main go-to passages to argue their point. I mean, in particular, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 are really problematic for those who hold to the perseverance of the saints. Let me reread for you verses 4 and 5. It is impossible... For those who have been are, I'm sorry, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness, uh, the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the coming age, and, and have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. I mean the assumption here is that one can be enlightened, One can share in the Holy Spirit. One can taste the goodness of God's word, but in the end, fall away. And as a result, it is impossible, it says, for them to then return back to the Lord. This passage seems to be at real odds with everything that I just said about the perseverance of the saints, because this passage is speaking to a serious form of disbelief. And it is what uh, is called apostasy, or the abandonment of the faith. You know, the book of Hebrews actually deals heavily with the notion of apostasy. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time, and I promise I have adjusted the sermon accordingly, uh, given that very long intro, I want to consider what is apostasy. I want to consider this idea of apostasy. And we're going to just do it by looking at what is an apostate, how does one fall into apostasy, and then what is the warning given about apostasy? So first, what is an apostate? Uh, Michael Kruger, who is, uh, who is one of my seminary professors, uh, he notes that the best way to define what an apostate is, is to actually say what an apostate is not first. Uh, The way that he would describe it and the way that he would articulate it is simply this, that an apostate is not someone uh, who does not uh, believe in Jesus, right? An apostate is not one who is not a Christian. There are many in the world who do not believe, and they are not apostates. Also, an apostate is not a struggling Christian, you know, all Christians have periods of struggle uh, when when their faith wanes, seasons when they backslide, quote unquote, or they fall into sin. That is not an apostate. Rather, an apostate, as Kruger defines it, is this: is someone who's inside God's covenant community, is part of the visible church, who professed faith in Christ, seems to be a believer probably partakes in the Lord's Supper and is a member of that congregation, and then later consciously and intentionally repudiates their belief in Christ and leaves the covenant community. That is what an apostate is. An apostate is someone who appears to be a Christian and by all accounts for many is a Christian. And yet in the end, Proves themselves to actually not have been one, and as they walk away from the faith, rejecting, repudiating the belief in Christ. So if that's what an apostate is, how does one become an apostate? What does that mean? Well, to answer that question, we need to consider who exactly the author of Hebrews is referring to. It's important for us to understand what is happening in this passage, because again, it produces some significant tensions for those who hold to this, the doctrine that I uh, quickly unpacked in the beginning. And so who exactly is the, the author of Hebrews writing to? Well, there's three possibilities of who he's writing to. Number one, he could be talking about believers who become apostates. And this would be the position of those who disagree with uh, with my position of the perseverance of saints. That the, the passage is speaking to Christians who have decided to walk away. They were genuine believers who have now decided to walk away. So that's number one, very possible possibility. Number two, two, though, uh, the author could be talking about church members who have appeared to be genuine believers, but in the end prove themselves to not be true believers as they renounce the faith they once claimed. So the author could be writing to to that group. A third group is that he is writing to Christians who will never actually commit this kind of apostasy. But they are being encouraged, nonetheless, to never do so. You know, the first category that I just named, those who uh, were true believers who end up falling away, as I've argued, I do not believe that the author is speaking about genuine Christians who leave the faith because I do not believe that it is possible, and I think uh, Scripture teaches that to be the case. It's not possible for true Christians to fall away. But it is worth noting that this passage really does create serious problems for that doctrine. The reason being, and this is simply this is a this is reason, is can someone who is not a believer in Jesus be enlightened, share in the Holy Spirit, taste the goodness of God's word? Can someone who is not truly a Christian experience those things? And my answer to that question would be, yes, it is possible. Which means that I believe in those three categories I just named, that the author of Hebrews is speaking to those who are church members, part of a congregation, by all accounts seem to be genuine believers, who are not actually genuine believers. And he is using this passage as a way to speak to true believers to watch out for apostasy, and to avoid it. And we'll get to that, uh, that call to avoid it in a moment. But with all that said, how is it possible then, if I say yes to, yes, someone can be enlightened, share in the Holy Spirit, share in the goodness of God, God's word, how is it possible for that to actually happen? You know, to say that anyone has heard the gospel is to say that in some ways they have been enlightened. You know, they have all the needed information at their disposal, even if it does not actually permeate the soul. And in this way, someone who is not a genuine believer can actually be enlightened to the gospel. This is what John was getting at in John 1 when he says that the true light gives light to everyone, meaning that there is a light that can be seen A light that can be experienced even though it does not necessarily turn into this actual saving knowledge of Jesus. And so in that way, people can be enlightened and yet still not be saved. What about this concept of sharing in the Holy Spirit or tasting the goodness of God's Word? Well, every single time we are in worship together, the Spirit of God is amongst us, working Amongst us, and the beauty of God's word is on full display. And so, yes, one who is part of the church community could experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and the goodness of God's word, and yet in the end, not be a true believer. I mean, is this possible? How is this possible? How can someone be enlightened and yet in the end, not be enlightened? Well, it's important to understand, I think, the other interesting piece to this is what this passage is actually speaking to when it says enlightened. You know, in one sense, it certainly has to do with you You can hear the gospel, be enlightened to the truths of the gospel, and yet not have it actually transform you. But the enlightenment also describes here, it points back to something I mentioned earlier, which is the sacraments as well. More than likely, the enlightenment could actually be referenced to the sacraments, particularly baptism. See, in the early church, in order for one to be baptized, uh, they needed to be welcomed into the church community, and they were welcomed into the church community by being catechized or taught the doctrine of the church. In that sense, they were enlightened to the doctrine of the church. Plus, it was only in worship, a worship service, that one could actually partake in the Lord's Supper. There are some who believe that when the author says that the uh, apostate, this person that they're speaking of, tasted the heavenly gift, that it's actually a reference to the Lord's Supper, that they are literally tasting the heavenly gift, the gift of Jesus. And so here's the reality. Here's why I'm unpacking all of this. Is that there are those in the church who, in some way or another, profess faith who, in the end, are not Christians, I mean, this is what the author is getting at. This has been a reality for the entirety of God's people's existence as well. I mean, within Israel, there were those who were part of God's covenant people, part of the nation of Israel, and yet were not part of what is called true Israel. I mean, Romans 9 hits on this. And then it says that not all the people of Israel are the true people of God they could be part of the covenant people of God and yet not actually be part of the true covenant people of God. The church, which is God's people of the Old Testament and the New Testament, has those who are part of the people of God, part of the covenant community, who appear to actually be part of the church community, who who will ultimately be discovered as those who are not actually part of the church community. You know, there are some really striking examples of this in the New Testament. You know, one obvious example would be that of Judas. You know, the man literally sat under the ministry of Jesus himself, but in the end proved himself to not be a true believer. The other more alarming passage in the New Testament for me is in Matthew 7. Jesus said that there are those who will call him Lord, and even do miracles in his name. But in the end, they are not true followers of him. And he will, in the last days, say, depart from me, I never knew you. And those are striking statements. And they speak to the nature of apostasy. The apostate, by all accounts, for a while, appears to be a follower of Jesus. And this passage is ultimately a warning for us against that kind of apostasy. I hope if you're tracking with me, I want you to just consider this as we consider this warning now. If you've been tracking with me, it doesn't seem worth warning against apostasy. It actually doesn't make sense for the author to do that. Since a true Christian will never actually fall away. So if a true Christian is never going to actually fall, fall away into apostasy, then why warn them against apostasy? But here is what I believe the author is doing, and here's what I want us to consider. He is writing about those who are not true believers, but he is writing to genuine believers to warn them, and he's using particular language to make his point. The reason reason being is because God will ensure the Christian perseveres to the end. But here is the warning, that even though God will ensure that we persevere to the end, it is still perseverance for us. The Christian life, walking with Jesus, is perseverance. Meaning to follow Christ is not some... I once prayed a prayer, and now I'm saved, and therefore I can just go on doing life however I want to just do life. You know, once saved, always saved, I can do what I want. Christian faith is not that at all, and the caricature of the perseverance of the faith being that is a misunderstanding of what it means for God to carry us through. You know, in fact, if that is our posture— that we can do whatever we want because we have been saved. It's a pretty good sign that we don't actually understand the gospel. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel of grace. I Paul addresses this in Romans 6 when he asks, you know, asks the question: Should we go on sinning so that grace abounds? Absolutely not, he said. A true Christian understands that following Jesus is perseverance. It is difficult work and it requires repentance and submission and fervent pursuits of the things of God. It is, as Jesus said, a call to pick up our cross and to follow him. It's what Paul said that we must press on toward the prize. It is what the author here in uh, chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, do not become lazy. To be a Christian is not about some kind of passivity. It is perseverance And here is the upshot. In that perseverance, it's there where we are strengthened by the Spirit of God to make it until the end. And so this is a call for God's people to not be complicit in their relationship with Jesus, to not be passive, but to press on, to not get lazy. And he's using the apostate as an example for us to reject and resist so that we can press on. Now, I've spent this time unpacking these ideas because I want to talk to several groups in closing. And I want you to hear me, please. First, I want to speak to Christians here. There are those who I know get worried that maybe you've become an apostate. There are those who are often worried that they have committed the unpardonable, unpardonable sin, which is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. However, if you are concerned about such things, please know that your concern is a pretty good sign that you have not actually committed that sin. For apostasy and blaspheming the Holy Spirit is when someone completely and definitively, as Kruger notes, consciously, intentionally repudiates their belief in Christ and leaves the covenant community. And so if you are a Christian, I want you to not worry about your salvation but be reminded of the security of your salvation. You did not save yourself, nor can you keep yourself saved. That is a work of God. He will sustain you. And know that there will be things in life that might cause you to not experience or feel that security. That there will be times when you, uh, seasons where doubt creeps in. And as a result of that doubt, you maybe question the promises of God. You know, if there is conscious sin in your life that is going to work against your assurance of your salvation, but I encourage you then to cling to the promises of God, that there is forgiveness and restoration through confession and repentance. Cling to Him and His promises. You know, if life is just beating you down, And as a result, it's working against your assurance. Again, cling to the promises that God will never leave you, he will never forsake you. Cling to him, trust that he will keep his promises to you and rejoice in that truth. As David prays in Psalm 51, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. When you are in a season of questioning your assurance of salvation, questioning your security, pray that prayer. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Chapter 6 of Hebrews is ultimately for you, Christian. A call to strive and persevere and trust the Lord will meet you, strengthen you, and assure you of his salvation. The second group that I want to talk to is I want to talk to those who do not profess Christ. Maybe you never believed in Jesus. Or maybe you have professed you professed at one time, but now you have rejected that faith. I want you to know that while you are still breathing, the Spirit of God is calling. He is calling you to lay down the pursuits that you have been using to fulfill that which only Jesus can ultimately fulfill. I want you to know that in this way, chapter 6 is a call For you to experience the promises of God. For they can be yours if you trust in Jesus. The third group and final group that I want to talk to are those of us who in our life have those who seem to be apostates. My wife and I, we've uh, had a lot of conversations uh, about this over the years, particularly You know, can we rightly call someone an apostate when in the end we just don't know? If an apostate is definitively a person who will not ever trust fully in the work of Jesus, can we really know for sure that someone is an apostate? You know, we've had experiences with people who have all the markers of apostasy, I mean, we've even seen pastors fall into what appears to be apostasy, and it's heartbreaking. But if our doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is true, then we have to conclude that there is always hope for their return. A return that proves that they were truly saved. They might very well be acting like an apostate. They might very well have rejected the faith, but because salvation is the Lord's and because he is kind and loving and compassionate and just, and we can trust that his will is going to be done and that in the end, we may not know what his plans are, but we can know that his plans are greater than ours. And so if you have someone in your life who appears to be in this category of of apostasy. Hear me, you can pursue them and pray for them with confidence and boldness and assurance. That is Second Peter three says, God does not want anyone to perish. And so if that is the case, then boldly come before God, bring that truth to Him, and audaciously pray for those in your life that seem to have fallen into this apostasy. Hope is never lost. Thanks be to God. His will and his purpose will be accomplished. He will never fail. And may we all cling to that promise and that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are safe and secure in the work of your Son. We thank you that you are greater than all of our wanderings, that when we wander, you draw us back. We thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us. We thank you that we never have to worry about whether or not we have lost our salvation, for our salvation is not rooted in anything I could give, but it's rooted solely in what you accomplish. Lord, we also acknowledge that there are times and there are seasons when our assurance of salvation wanes for various reasons. God, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation when we find ourselves there? And ultimately, would we be reminded of what this passage is ultimately speaking to, which is though uh, we, we... believe that we will persevere to the end as a result of your uh, Spirit working in us. It is perseverance. And it will be difficult. And it does require a striving after the things of you. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to do that? Glorify yourself in us, Lord. God, we also pray for those who have wandered. Those who maybe by all accounts seem to have the Uh, markings of apostasy. God, we will cling to hope. And we will believe that your will will be done. And we will with boldness continue to come before you, asking that you would draw them back to yourself. Strengthen us in those prayers, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.